This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 108 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is, and for the last 30 years has been, one of the most popular and respected singers and songwriters in the world, Sting. The 65-year-old Brit is responsible for as many beloved songs as almost anyone else out there. Songs he wrote and performed first as the frontman for the rock band The Police between the years 1977 and 1983, and subsequently as a solo artist. Roxanne, Every Breath You Take, Message in a Bottle, Don't Stand So Close to Me, Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic, Can't Stand Losing You, If You Love Somebody Then Set Them Free, Fragile, Fields of Gold, and the list, of course, goes on. He's also been nominated for the Best Original Song Oscar three times, for My Funny Friend and Me in 2000's The Emperor's New Groove, for Until in 2001's Kate and Leopold, and for You Will Be My Ain't True Love in 2003's Cold Mountain. In just a couple of months, he may well pick up a fourth for The Empty Chair, a song that he and two-time Oscar nominee Jay Ralph co-composed for the documentary Jim, the James Foley story, a film about a freelance American war correspondent killed in Syria in 2014, which premiered at Sundance back in January and has received widespread praise, not least for the beautiful tune which plays over its closing credits. Over the course of our conversation, Sting and I discuss a wide range of topics, from why he so desperately wanted to escape the Northeast England shipping town in which he was born and raised, to how fate introduced music and a Spanish guitar into his life, to how Gordon Sumner acquired the nickname Sting and wound up in, and then later dissolving, a rock band called The Police, to his subsequent solo career, which encompasses a dozen LPs, the most recent of which, 57th and 9th, was released earlier this month and marks a return of sorts to the sound of the music put out by The Police, to why this great musician, who is certainly not sitting around waiting for offers, decided to make the time to contribute his talents to a low-budget documentary about a man he never met and never will meet. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
thing. Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always begin with sort of a stock question. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? I have a little bit of an advantage because I have seen The Last Ship, but I'm going to, for anyone who hasn't, maybe you can provide some of that. I was born in uh, a seaport in the north of England uh, on the River Tyne. I was born next to a shipyard. My grandfather was a shipbuilder. My father was a milkman. They were married very young. I think my mother was 17 when she had me. Wow. So I was brought up by children. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. <laughs> now, I, I understand that you kind of obviously were amused by what was going on around you. You've now chronicled that in, in this show that I got to see on Broadway. But at the same time, is it true that from a very early age, you knew you wanted to get out of there? Well, you wouldn't want to work in a shipyard. <laughs> I mean, that's dangerous, noisy, frightening dark place and I you know I was enough of a dreamer to uh, realize that perhaps there's another world out there there were two choices in my town there was a coal mine at one end of the town and a shipyard at the other neither very attractive prospects for a dreamer <laughs> like me you know and the idea of even just being a dreamer there where do you think that came from I read something about the queen mother coming through one day mm-hmm. it sort of brought in your horizons I, I, I don't know where it came from you know I used to work with my dad in the mornings from five o'clock till eight o'clock before I went to school when all my school friends were in bed and I used to resent the hell out of that. But it did offer me the opportunity to uh, let my imagination run wild, you know, because I was, it was dark most mornings at that time. We had the streets to ourselves and didn't say much. So I would just imagine a different future. And I must have dreamt it pretty hard because it, it seemed to happen. I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be a, a songwriter. Where were the models for that in your life? Were you seeing, mu- listening to music? My mother music? was a piano player, uh, a very good one. And my dad had a good voice. And when they weren't fighting, they would actually perform together, really? which wasn't very often. <laughs> <laughs> and is it correct that we kind of have a an uncle to thank for, for you discovering the guitar? Yeah. One of my dad's brothers um, emigrated to Canada in the 50s and couldn't take his possessions with him so left the guitar in the house and I I, uh, gravitated towards that thing like uh, a friend that I knew and became my best friend and in terms of music that you were listening to I understand that the the Beatles were kind of a big influence for a few different reasons right I mean geography their history and then also the the sort of way they made their music well I mean before the Beatles I, I, I was very much modeled after my mother's musical taste, you know, she she listened to show tunes. She, mm. she loved Rodgers and Hammerstein. She like she brought rock and roll into the house. And in 1957, I heard All Shook Up, which had a, a kind of effect on me, which I can still remember. Like like it was like being injected with an aphrodisiac, <laughs> with, <laughs> to which you had no defense. Right. And I realized that that was some some kind of future. Then Jerry Lee Lewis, Great Balls of Fire, Little Richard, rock and roll really was very prevalent in our house, and the show tunes. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the Beatles in 62, I think, hearing Love Me Do, I recognized something in that that was kind of unique. And then finding out that they too were from a northern industrial town like me, and that they wrote their own songs and conquered the world gave permission to a whole generation of Englishmen 
the permission mm-hmm. to tr- try to do the same. So while you could see that it was possible, you also had to still, until it became a reality, obviously had to pay the bills. So what were some of the normal jobs that you had before you became a professional? Well, I, you know, I always worked. I, was, I always had money in my pocket. I worked for my dad in the mornings. And then in the evenings, I would sell newspapers. In fact, my first singing job was selling the Evening Chronicle on the corner to the shipyard workers. Hmm. My mother thought it was very common, but uh, I did it anyway. <laughs> and I worked on building sites. I worked on a bus conductor. I worked in an office for the civil service for a while. I then went to teacher's training college and became a teacher for two years. But all through that, I was a musician. I'd, I'd be playing at night in folk clubs, in social clubs, and you know, in night, nightclubs, back in cabaret, back in comedians, striptease artists, mm. working in theaters, in the pit, in musicals. And once on a ship, right? And I was I was also working on a cruise ship for a while, which was hell. <laughs> but in, in a way, I'm grateful for that rather um, a wide-ranging experience as a musician. It wasn't I wasn't just in a garage rock band. I was playing all kinds of music with men who were often, you know, in their 60s or 70s even, mm. and learning to play standards. When all you'd get as a if you play a, like a old-time dance music. These guys would play for an hour at a time and never stop. So the only clue you would get about what the next song was was the key, and they'd do it with the right hand. They'd drop two fingers to the floor for the key of (laughs) B-flat. Or one finger for the key of F. Or (laughs) one finger up for the key of G. So that's all you got. So you had to go to a fourth below that to find the next key, and then you'd learn all of these standards. So I had a very exacting musical education not a formal conservatory education at all but equally exacting i believe it's the case that while you were in these earlier bands it was not until the police that you actually were in a rock band these were other genres right prior to that yeah i I played a lot of jazz dixieland traditional jazz and there are parallels in rock and roll obviously i played in like a mainstream jazz group i played in a big band and we, we played neil hefty arrangements and bassy tunes and you know, I learned to read music on the job. What was the Sunderland Social Club and what happened there that kind of changed things? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I used to play um, all around the towns of the northeast of England in social clubs, working men's clubs. And the main event every night is not the act. That's just a sideshow. The main event is bingo. <laughs> and uh, we used to play bingo. Do you really want the story? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... <laughs> One night we're backstage and we're sharing a dressing room with the bingo machine, which is this big sort of see-through perspex box with ping pong balls with numbers on Mm -hmm. and a blower. And the balls are sucked into a a perspex tube. And at the end, they're stopped by a kind of lip thing, which is also made of plastic. And uh, our band leader at the time, who was called Gordon Solomon, was just absentmindedly fiddling with it. And it broke. And of course, this was like, you know, breaking the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant had been somehow, you know, violated. And we were like terrified at that point that they about to wheel it out for the main event, which is the bingo calling. And uh, we, it was too late to, to to stop them. And of course, when they turned the machine on, all the balls went all over the club <laughs> with disastrous results. And we just ran for our lives because we realized that we'd be killed. <laughs> now... Wasn't that also, though, the place where, while you were with the Phoenix Jasmine, 
you were given a nickname. Yeah. I mean, I was much younger than the rest of the band, and I would refuse to wear the band uniform, which was a hideous pink nylon shirt <laughs> and black slacks. So I would, I would turn up, you know, as an 18-year-old in whatever I thought was hip at the time, and my girlfriend had knit me a... A, a top which was kind of hoop black and yellow hoops which i thought looked really cool and of course the the, the band laughed at this outrageous <laughs> costume of mine and, and called me thought i looked like a bee or a wasp and then started to call me sting with much <laughs> much hilarity and i just the name just stayed with me and did you like it no no it was derisory but then people got to know me as sting and other bands you know hire me and you know they said what's that guy called oh this the sting one yeah because <laughs> up to that point you were gordon well no i'd always had nicknames but Sting was the one that stuck and uh i just sort of kept it after a while it was silly but it actually it worked for me yeah what's happened to the sweater <laughs> I have no idea. So uh, I think I might have ditched it. You might have ditched. Yeah, <laughs> that that would be a, a collector's piece now. So how was it that in 1977, around the time that punk was, I guess, just first coming on the scene, how did you wind up heading south to London and meeting up with these other guys? Well, I at the time, it's before that I was in a in a jazz rock group based on the work of. Chick Corea's Return to Forever or McLaughlin's Mahavishnu Orchestra. A band came up from London called Curve Dare, who were quite successful. And the drummer came to see us at the, at the request of a local journalist. He said, you, you should see this band. You know, they're, they're actually really, they can play. And I met Stuart Copeland, who was the drummer. And he said, look, anytime you come to London, here's, here's my number, give me a call. So I <laughs> actually left Newcastle that following week with only one telephone number to my name <laughs> which was this one and he lived in a very posh part of london in mayfair and green street was actually where the beatles and ended up huh. in london for the first time and i called him up and i said you know i, I met you last week in newcastle he said yeah he said where are you i said i'm actually downstairs in the street <laughs> in, a, in a telephone box he said well come up and I thought this was very posh. I mean, I went up like four flights of stairs in this very old Georgian house, and I thought, wow, this guy's really successful. I said, wow, it's a, it's really a very expensive part of town. He said, yeah, but it's a squat. We're squatting here. <laughs> and there was a drum kit set up there and some uh, equipment, and started to play with him. He plugged in. He said, look, I'm thinking of starting a punk band, you know, inspired by the Sex Pistols. And I said, yeah. Okay, but <laughs> didn't have any anything else on. You yeah. know, this is my only contact in yeah. London. <laughs> so I said, "Have you got any songs?" He said, "Yeah, I've got a couple of songs." So I learnt the songs, and they were just three chord thrashes. And then a guitarist turned up. He was a Corsican guy who couldn't really play that much, but he looked the part. And so we became the Police. Well, why the Police? Uh, I don't know. It was you know, it was, it was Stuart's band and Stuart's entire concept. So I just went along with it because I didn't have any, you know, any other. Options, but you never knew why it was called the police. No, I, I think Stuart had. Uh, I think his his father was in the CIA, was one of the founder members of the CIA. Seriously, wow! And so I think that he had, you know, vaguely authoritarian leanings, <laughs> you know, which were kind of opposite to my political bent at the time. But I went. I just went along with it. And so the guitarist that had turned up was Andy Summers. 
No. No? It was a guy called Henry Padovani. He was a Corsican guy. And as I said, he, he was a lovely guy, but he, he looked great, but he couldn't really play. And then I was in London for a little longer. I met Andy Summers, who was a very experienced guitarist, very accomplished guitarist, more like the kind of musician I was used to playing with. Mm-hmm. And we ended up playing together with Stuart, and we realized that that was perhaps the way to go. You felt uh, that it was meshing right away. And then I realized that I, I could contribute to the writing of, of this band if I had some somebody like Andy who could handle the chords that uh, I was writing, or, yeah. or, you know, embellish them and actually make them better. So we became the police. So the punk thing was a flag of convenience more than anything authentic. And I think people recognize that. Yeah. It wasn't until, until we came to America that uh, we, we actually did anything because we were kind of exotic when we got to America. How soon after you formed was that? Uh, about a year. Mm-hmm. We, we struggled for a year in, in London and then did various tours with people in Europe like Wayne County and the Electric Chairs, Cherry Vanilla, playing, you know, real grungy punk clubs in Holland and Germany and France. And we were struggling. We weren't doing well until... We paid for ourselves to come to New York, got a gig at CBGB's, and a few people at the rapper company came to hear us and liked it. Then a radio station in Texas, I think WLBJ, which was was Lady Bird Johnson's radio station, Mm -hmm. started to play Roxanne. Another one in UC Davis in California started to play us, and so it kind of went viral. And as we were touring around America in a station wagon, driving ourselves, really? we'd hear our song at the same time as Dire Straits' uh, Sultans of Swing, which is interesting because Mark Knopfler is from my hometown too. So we were kind of owning the airwaves. Amazing. What was it like the first time you heard your oh, song on the radio? I mean, actually the first time was in, was in London on the BBC. I heard Roxanne and I was painting the kitchen with some white emulsion, I was up a ladder and I, the radio was on and I started singing along with the radio and I realized it's me. <laughs> I just about fell off the ladder and spilled paint everywhere. Now, at that time, before you came <laughs> to the States, it was just to contextualize how financially rough it was at that point. How did you guys make your master tape? We stole it. <laughs> Miles Copeland was Stuart's brother and he used to manage a band called Renaissance. I think it was called the Renaissance, and he had some old two-inch tape of uh, of an album of theirs in the garage. So we stole it and recorded over it. <laughs> so uh, we had no morality. When you're poor, you you can't afford to have morals. I guess so. Now, why was Roxanne <laughs> the one that that broke through? What would you have guessed that would be the one? Did you, did it seem to you particularly special, or is that just? Well, it was it was actually against the the grain of what was going down in punk at the time, which is very much uh, kind of very angry, thrashing, sort of fast music. Roxanne was originally a bossa nova that I'd written on a trip to France, you know, on the guitar. <laughs> uh, and then we, we got in the studio and then we, we messed around with it and it became a kind of tango. Stuart suggested that we put the beat on the, the second beat of the bar instead of the front. So it was, it's like a tango. And then it goes into sort of straight eight rock and roll and then back to this odd thing. And it's a strange song. It's, it doesn't sound like anything else. And the vocal approach is very unique. And I think it just stuck out like a sore thumb, whether you liked it or not. Yeah. It was definitely a signature. Yeah. 
that uh, radio took to. And I s- sing the song to this day. And yeah. I'm very grateful for Roxanne. Sure. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you about every one of the of the great songs that, that you guys did, but there's one that I just think the origin story, it's sort of maybe illustrative of how these things can happen just unpredictably. Can you share how Every Breath You Take came to you? You know, I was in um, Jamaica, and uh, I was staying at a place called Goldeneye, which used to belong to Ian Fleming. He wrote all the James Bond books, and it was during the Falklands War, which would be 1982. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, the police were very successful at the time, and I woke up and just went to my guitar, and it was just a major chord followed followed by a relative minor, and you know, nothing particularly original. You know, if you read the lyrics, there's nothing particularly original about the lyrics either, and I often wonder, I ponder why the song is so successful. And when I reflect on it, I think it's because it's very ambivalent. It's, it is both romantic, comforting, and also very sinister. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I play both sides of that coin in the vocal delivery mm-hmm. and, and in the arrangement. And so people interpret it in many, many different ways, and that is its power. It's not original, but the, the fact that it's um, ambiguous gives it this very strange influence. And it's, you know, it's... I got an award the other day for 13 million plays on American radio. Oh, my God. (laughs) Which, if you add it up, I think it's like 100 years of continuous airplay. (laughs) (laughs) So when you have songs that become that popular, and you've had a lot of them, it gets to the point where... Obviously, that means a lot of other people know them and love them. So what is it like when you, as you guys began performing to much bigger crowds than than before, you know, when you're standing in front of 50,000 or 100,000 people who know and love and sing along to a song that only exists because of you, what does that feel like? Well, it's a pretty rarefied experience, I have to tell you, and one I don't take for granted because those songs I may have written in my flat alone, my apartment alone, maybe with a cat listening, not very <laughs> interestedly, uh, and then to, to have it sung back at you by 100,000 people, 50,000, who knows, yeah. I mean, is extraordinary. Um, not something you could have anticipated, and except in your wildest fantasies, which, mm. of course, I had too. Mm-hmm. But uh, when it becomes a reality, you don't take it for granted. It's quite special. How did you acclimate to being a much well-known person? Yeah, rock star, let's say it. I Luckily... Mean, I wasn't 17. I was actually 27 before I had any success. And I'd had all of these jobs before that, real jobs. I had a pension plan. I, you know, I was a father. I was a husband. I voted, paid tax. So I had a real life before I had this unreal one, which allowed me some perspective on, on you know, just what fame meant. You know, I, I still, it still went to my head. <laughs> I admit that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it would have gone to my head much in a much more catastrophic way if I hadn't had that other perspective of, of living a normal life. And I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for those years of struggle, those years of not being sure where the next you know meal was coming from. Because I'm grateful now for the gift that fame has given me. You know, 
I don't take it that seriously. I never have. So I, I, I think I cope with it better than I would have done if I was just straight out of school and, you know, an X Factor phenomena. Well, that's what I was going to ask, because today it's so increasingly common that famous musicians become famous through almost instantly through these various reality shows. And I just wonder, what is the consequence of that? Is that a bad thing? I worry. You know, I worry about it because where do you develop the, the backbone or, or the, the resilience to deal with the ups and downs that careers have? You know, if all you've had is success and then suddenly you get a dip, mm-hmm. then you can be in very serious psychological yeah. ter- territory. Yeah. So you need to have some kind of armor to protect yourself against that. So I, I worry that, that that model, that X-Factor model, it doesn't build resilience. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I could be wrong. I mean, they're obviously very, very wonderful artists who can survive that. Yeah. But generally, I, I, I think, you know, it, it's good television. It, it's cheap and it's exploitative. <laughs> but I, I'm not entirely in favor of it. Right. So you and the police, you released five studio albums, won six Grammys, put out so many of these these great songs. So why was it that, I guess in 83, when you guys were on top of the world, why did things kind of break apart? And except for, I believe there was this single in 86 and then obviously the reunion tour in 2007. But why did it end when it did? A lot of the decisions I've made in my life would seem counterintuitive. I left my teaching job, my teaching post for a dream. (laughs) I was, you know, I had no money. I had a wife. I had a kid. I we went to London with no more than one phone number and a fl- uh, we had a floor to sleep on somewhere. That was counterintuitive. It took courage to do that. But for some reason, I thought that that was the right decision to make. Then I found myself in the biggest band in the world at the time, mm-hmm. hugely successful. I made another counterintuitive decision to actually stop that and begin again. I couldn't rationalize it at the time. But my intuition was telling me that that was the thing to do, despite it being seeming odd. And I hope I continue to have the courage to do that because it, you know, I think fortune favors the, the brave, or, or it's not foolish, but it's, it, there's a certain bravery in doing things against the grain. And I like surprises. I like to surprise myself. I like to surprise people. Yeah. So every decision I make is about trying to create surprise. And as you embark now on this on this solo career, what did you find were the, the best and worst parts comparatively to what you'd experienced up to that point? Well, I mean, the, the best thing was to, to gain a sort of wider palette to paint with, you know, not just being limited to a band. I mean, it, the, the police were a fantastic group, but we were defined by limitation. There were only three of us, and it was a very, very a signature sound. But it could only go so far. And so my interest was in songwriting. So I wanted a a larger vehicle for songwriting than just the police. And so I I got a bigger band. It was more flexible. I mean, I guess it wouldn't have been possible to do a 16th century song on a lute when you were with the police. Well, there's another, you know, counterintuitive decision, which I made to to make an album of 16th century art songs. And the record company going, scratching their heads and going, really? (laughs) I do remind them that it's older million, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, so it gave you more sort of creative freedom to go and try things that that interested you. Success for me is is creating that space where you can explore. You know, for me, music is a 
is an ocean with the, without a coastline. Its depth is limitless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just swimming in that thing. I'm just seeing where it takes me. You've said that, quote, it's difficult to write a song that hasn't been done before, and it gets more difficult as you get older because your standards get higher and because you filter much, close quote. So I would have in some ways assumed that because you've been doing it for as long as you've been doing it, that it would actually get easier. But you say it's absolutely not. No, I think it's, it's both an advantage and a disadvantage being at this stage in my career because when you're younger you're you're more confident actually about decisions you make uh there's a sort of cocksureness about you that as you get older you realize it isn't really tenable mm-hmm. <laughs> but the advantage to being at this stage in a career is that you the issues you're facing are actually much more interesting the main one being mortality the finite nature of, of life mm. forces you to develop philosophy whereas you know initial success i'm not sure how much philosophy you learn up there you know <laughs> you're in the spotlight you know it's the, the world is great everyone loves you you're making pots of money that's not uh, doesn't give you time to reflect mm-hmm. so i think having time to reflect on what that means which is where i am now allows for more difficult work but actually in my opinion more interesting work i think all the, all the great art is about that subject mortality <laughs> is it a concern when you've done such great work in your past that when you do something new do you yourself consciously ever compare it to things that you've done in the past and say you know is this going to stack up and when you've set the bar so high in the past does that also give you any trepidation about putting out new new stuff you know i don't put things out unless i'm surprising myself yeah unless i've you know laid a surprise in the composition or i've made a a choice that people might find surprising. To surprise, it surprises the uh, the element of music which you can't do without, and so that's that's what I go for. Mm. Even if the surprise is you've gone back to a certain stage in your career, you know you're you're kind of reproducing that kind of energy. That's a surprise too, yeah. which I think this current album, to a large extent, has done. And yeah. That's what people have said. Oh, it sounds like you know you're 25 again. Yeah, New York Times was saying this is we're talking about fifty seventh and ninth. This is the twelfth solo LP. Which, after saying you were not especially interested in going back to rock sounding songs, that's what some people have felt this was. New York Times said, "quote Unmistakably recalls the police." Close quote. Well, you know, I have to remind people that I was I was in the police, yeah. and uh, I was the singer and the bass player and the songwriter. Right. So it, it, it's it's my DNA. We're talking of about, of course. Here. Well, so I do want to talk more about that and and a number of these things that you've done recently uh, leading into Jim, the James Foley story, this documentary that you've done a great song for. But first, can we talk about The Last Ship, which, again, I was fortunate to see it on Broadway actually before you came and started acting in it. And it was a short-lived show there, but you've said that making it was, quote, the happiest five years, close quote, of your life. Certainly the most challenging, difficult, enjoyable demanding five years of my life, which I have no regrets about at all. I loved every minute of it. I chose the most difficult thing to do on Broadway, which is to do an original play rather than, you know, a a property that already has, you know, a resonance, you know, some fairy tale or a movie, Beverly Hills Cop, the musical. Or just your greatest hits. Or a a jukebox musical. (laughs) That's the easy course. It's not my way. 
my way is to go the most difficult route. Yeah. So I decided to write about my hometown and the community I came from. This largely is therapy for, for myself, you know, to come to terms with where I come from. But also I, I thought it's, a, it's an interesting and useful story, mm. which sort of predates Brexit and that the working class alienation mm-hmm. feeling left out. And again, not the easiest subject for a Broadway audience to embrace, you know, a serious subject, not a sort of razzmatazz of tale. It, it was gritty and it was real. But I'm nonetheless very proud of it. And, you know, the, the Cognoscenti who came to see it loved it. Yeah. And I, I think if we'd had a little more time to build an audience, we would have been still been going. But, uh, you know, we, we didn't get that. It's a very, very tough world. But it's played elsewhere outside of New York, right? Uh, I, I saw a performance of it in Salt Lake City a month ago, <laughs> which is interesting to see my my hometown, re, you know, uh, recreated in the middle of Utah. Right. <laughs> but effectively. Yeah. And we're hoping to put it on a, a, in London next year. That's great. So it lives. Yeah. And I'm deeply proud of it. Well, in, in another recent thing where you sort of went back and revisited the, the past in a sense, you first performed at the Bataclan in Paris, the venue that was attacked about a year ago mm. in, a, in a terrorist attack. You first played there in 1979, I mm. think. So when this horrific thing happened... And now we're coming up on a year afterwards. How did it end up being that you were the artist who was sort of brave enough to reopen it? Well, they were struggling to reopen the venue because acts were uh, understandably reticent about doing it. I was asked pretty late. I was asked maybe two weeks before we were about to do it. And I immediately said yes because of two reasons. I I thought I could do a good job of reconciling two almost opposite tasks. One, one to pay respect to the dead. I knew the audience would contain family members who had lost loved ones, survivors of the event. To honor that and also to celebrate this historic venue and bring it back to life, celebrate the music and, and the, the life that had gone on there. So reconciling those two tasks was not easy. Mm-hmm. But I think we managed to do it in that I began with a minute of silence for for the dead. And then I, rather than start with a bang, I started with the song I normally finish with, which is Fragile, mm-hmm. which has been used effectively for similar events. You know, I remember singing it, singing it after 9-11 to great effect. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a very specific song about, about the effects of violence and the fragility of human life. And so... Once we'd done that, then the audience could relax mm-hmm. a little more, and it became a, a then a celebration of of life. But it was important to have that ritual first. Sure, there were families there. One mother holding a picture of her son, who she'd lost. You know, so it was not the easiest gig in the world. But I'm very glad I did it. It was well received. Yeah, I know it meant a lot to people. Coming back to 57th and 9th, first of all, the title is personally relevant to you, right? Why is it called 57th and 9th? <laughs> the studio I made it in was in Hell's Kitchen, and I live on the Upper West Side, so to get to work every day, and I walk to work whenever I can, mm-hmm. uh, I'd have to cross 57th Street, which, as you know, is a very busy thoroughfare, mm-hmm. two ways. Uh, you, you can't cross it carelessly. No. Otherwise, somebody in a yellow cab will kill you. <laughs> so I would always wait for the the light to t- turn green and um 
in that those moments I would actually consciously meditate <laughs> or take stock of the work I was doing yeah. at the time or my life in the city, my life generally. Just just a few moments, just standing, waiting. And I would do that on the way back home too. And it became a little sort of touchstone for my thoughts during the day. And on the way, you know, walking I find very creative, very, there's a binary rhythm to walking that, that tells us tells a story. Mm. You know, it has a beginning, a middle and an end. Every walk has that, as, as there's a song. So I thought of a lot of ideas for the songs on those walks. So I named the album 57th and 9th after the the intersection. Well, and speaking of songs in on that album that deal with reflection, I, I know that 50,000 is one that I think is in a way of acknowledgement of the fact that we've lost a lot of great hmm. musical artists in, over the last year or so, and that you as one of the few people who can kind of relate to what their kind of crowning moments were, you wanted to kind of you know reflect on that, right? It's a pretty complex song in many, many ways, you know, like all of us, you know, when, it, when we lose our cultural icons, we imagine that they're somehow immortal. It's not a rational feeling, but it's something we all share. So when Prince dies, when David Bowie dies, I think, God, how could that, how could that be? Hmm. You know, he seems immortal. Yeah. And yet he's anything but. Of course, we're all terribly mortal. But you know, that feeling of, that rarefied feeling I described before of standing in front of all of those people and being in the spotlight does make you feel very empowered, perhaps immortal. And the truth is, you know, that the music of those men will live forever. Yeah. There is a certain immortality, but it's certainly not physical. So I'm addressing the, those issues as a 65-year-old man myself who's lived most of his life being successful in reflection. I'm learning that philosophy I'm talking about, you know, mm -hmm. how uh, mortality is actually not, it's not a morbid subject at all. It actually enriches life to accept that. You know, I miss the work of those guys. I miss those contemporaries of mine who, who were so influential. Mm -hmm. um, I'm celebrating them at the yeah, same time. Yeah, that's a great tribute. And there's so many interesting things on this album. Uh, Inshallah, I believe, is about basically the migrant crisis and things that are going on. But People will be able to see you on tour performing this starting in February, which is great. But another song that maybe is not automatically going to get the same level of attention everywhere as, as say, 50,000, but that really deserves it is this one, The Empty Chair, that you've now done for a documentary that came to your attention because of, I guess, a, a, a person that you'd known before, Josh Ralph? Yeah, Josh... Uh... I've known him for a couple of years. He invited me to his studio down in the East Village in Chinatown. He had an old vaudeville studio, which was full of kind of antique musical treasures like Duke Ellington's piano and amazing old jukeboxes. And it was lit like Aladdin's cave. And he invited me down there and I was really enjoying it. And then he said to me, I'd like you to watch a movie. I said, oh, really? I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. <laughs> And I certainly wasn't expecting the film you showed me. It was uh, the documentary based on the life of James Foley, the American photojournalist who was murdered in 2014 in Syria. And a very emotional film, emotionally draining in many ways. And he said, look, I've, I've, I've written this little hymn for the end of the thing. I'd like you to write a song for it. 
And I said, I don't think I can do that. I was just too devastated by what I've just seen to even think about writing a song. I don't know how you do that. So I said, and I said no. And I said, well, give me a day or two to think about it. I said, there's a, there's a letter he wrote to his family that's, that's mentioned in the thing. Could, could we get a copy of that? Mm. So we did, and, and I read through it. And I still, did, I still didn't know how to do this thing. And then I was, it was Thanksgiving, and I was sitting with a lot of my kids around the table. And I thought, well, God, if one of my kids was in captivity, how would I feel and what would I do? You know, I'd probably leave a place for them, set a place for them, a chair and a place setting to honor them, to you know, hope that they would fill it at some point. And once I'd thought of that, oh, that's the metaphor. You know, it's very specific for this story. And it's also very universal. It's something that everyone can understand. So I, I then went to the letter and cherry-picked things that his family had said about Jim or what Jim had said about his life and compiled the song from those elements. And uh, I, I sent it the next morning mm. to Josh, who then emailed me back and said, you're supposed to make this look difficult. <laughs> and I said, well, it's not difficult once you have a metaphor. Right. You know? So that's the empty chair. And it closes the film, which obviously it deals with the film itself deals with some dark things, but to have it end in a in a hopeful sort of at least uplifting way is important. Well, it important. helps you get your coat on. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and for you to perform this song at Sundance in front of his family, that must have been an unusual thing. Uh, yeah, that was a pretty uh, exceptional uh, experience, you know, hoping that they would they would recognize that what we'd done was respectful and appropriate. And indeed, they, they, they liked it very much, and they did say that we'd somehow distilled Jim's essence into the song. You know, the, the film is, is remarkable because you actually get to know this man and fall in love with him in, in many ways because he's a true American hero, not a shoot him up kind of hero mm. but you know a, a hero with heroism grounded in compassion and caring and, and genuine courage and he died extraordinarily cruelly but very bravely mm. and it's an inspiring story you know and you know people are thinking about disengaging from the world this this is an antidote to that right this this is the kind of americanism that the world needs well just as a final question i, I hope i can ask you to share one last thing that I, I came across in preparing for this, which was that you had a conversation with your father late in his life that in a way brings this, I believe, full circle. It was about hands of all things from what I from what I read and how in a weird way you were able to find some connectivity, I guess, with him that hadn't always come easily. Yeah, I mean, my, my dad was a working man. He didn't really have any autistic... He wasn't given given any artistic kind of expression. And on his deathbed, you know, I, I had his hand in mine. I realized we have exactly the same hand, sort of rather gnarly. <laughs> and, and I said to him, you know, we have the same hands. He said, yes, but you use yours better than I use mine. And he'd never actually paid me a compliment before. So that was, his timing was kind of devastating. But, you know, we, we, we found an understanding after you know, 24 years of, not quite meshing. 
I was I was grateful for that moment. Yeah, you've used your hands well and and your voice and everything. So try to. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. Pleasure.